Joshua chapter 24. Last week we looked at the beginning and the end of Joshua chapter 24. And we saw that the motivation for our service to God is the grace that we've received from Him. Joshua laid out for them all the things that God had done for, for them from the time back when, before Abraham was, was brought out of the, uh, the godless land that he lived in, all the way through Egypt, through the wilderness, and then finally to the conquest of Canaan. And, uh, and Joshua was explaining to them why they should serve God. The reason that they should serve God was because God was worthy to be served because he had done great things for them and because he had been faithful to them. And this week we're going to answer the basic question, why should we serve only God? Why should we serve God alone? Let's begin reading in Joshua chapter 24 with verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words the Lord, the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus, if it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. And then Josh, Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. Why should we serve only God? Why should we serve God alone? We are going to see today that God demands exclusive worship. That God demands that He alone be worshipped. The first thing that we see in verses 14 and 15 is the choice of exclusive worship. The choice. Joshua lays out for them what he says they should do. He's basically giving them a choice. You need to decide between the true and living God and these gods which your father have served. And so now it was time to choose. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in two ways. Serve Him in sincerity 
and in truth. Those who fear the Lord will serve God the way He wants to be worshipped. It's not enough to simply worship God in sincerity, to do it with a lot of passion and desire. Joshua says you also have to do it in truth. It has to be according to how God wants to be worshipped. So both in sincerity and truth. We'll talk about sincerity later. But basically, Israel now finds themselves at, at a crossroads, at a watershed time in their history, where they have to choose between God and the false gods, between the true and living God and the gods of this land. Because... As Joshua explains to them, God does not accept rivals. God demands that he alone is to be worshipped. And so Israel has to make a choice. It is time for them to choose. Would it be the gods of this world, whom their fathers had served, whom, whom God had brought them out of? Remember, Abraham was the one who was beyond the river that that Joshua is talking about here in verse 14. He says, And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river. He's talking about nearly 600 years earlier when Abraham's fathers had been serving these false gods beyond the river. And yet God brought him out of that. He took him, as we saw last week. Or should it be the gods in Egypt? But Joshua says, You need to serve the Lord. Don't choose those false gods. They will not satisfy. So then he moves to the motivation for service, as we talked about last week. And we see this in verses 16 through 20. The leaders pick up on this necessity of exclusive worship. They pick up on the idea that, yes, indeed, they do need to follow God alone. And so they respond to Joshua's um, commandment, to Joshua's plea to them. And it says in verse 16 that the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then it tells us why. Why is it that the people want to serve God and God alone? It tells us in verse 17, Because the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt. The first reason that they give for, for why they are going to serve God alone is because of God's works. Verses 16 through 18. We would never forsake God and serve other gods because of what God has done for us. These are the things that he's done. Verse 17, he brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery. He did these great miracles for us. And so we could go back to verses 5 through 7 and see all the great things that Israel had received from God, all the great works that they had seen God done, do. And as a result, they, they are motivated. They have a heart filled with the desire to serve God, to follow after Him because of what He had done. But not only that, He didn't just bring them out of Egypt. second part of verse 17 tells us that He protected them in the wilderness. It says, And who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. They recognized that, that there was danger all around them as they were traveling in the wilderness. And that there were any number of circumstances that could have come upon them and destroyed them. There could have been enemies that attacked them. There could have been hunger or some other thing to kill them. But instead they recognized that God was protecting them. And so they, they used that as a motivation to follow after God. But not only that, they also see 
We also see in verse 18 that the Lord had won the conquest of Canaan. Verse 18 says, The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. So God brought us out of Egypt. God protected us while we were in the wilderness. And God helped us to win the battle. God won the battle, I should say, against the Amorites and all the other peoples in the land of Canaan. They recognized what God had done. And they basically repeat what Joshua had said, as we looked at last week in verses 1-13, through 13, that God has done all these great things for you, so why not serve Him? You should serve Him because of these great things. So the first reason that Israel gives, the first motivation that they have for serving Him, is because of the great works that God has done. But then we see in the last part of verse 18, because of their personal relationship with God. Look at verse 18. The very last sentence in that verse says, We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. There is a personal relationship that has been established between them and God. Look at verse 14. This is what Joshua is calling for. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. That demands that, that Israel enters into a personal relationship with God. It is not something that is just some sort of distant thing where God throws down some blessings on them and then they accept them and God is so far away. No, it's a personal relationship. And Israel responds in, in a proper way by serving the Lord. They say, Joshua, we will serve the Lord because God has done these great works, because we have a personal relationship with God. And then we see in verses 19 through 20, because God is a jealous God, because of the jealousy of God. Verse 19 says, Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. So after... Joshua hears their response. He responds with, No, you cannot serve them because God is a jealous God. The idea of jealousy is that God does not tolerate rivals. He does not allow us to put Him up on our mantle along with all of our other gods and serve all of them. God does not tolerate rivals. He says, I am God alone in Isaiah. There is no other. You need to serve me. And so this is what Joshua is saying. God has this righteous jealousy, this righteous uh, feeling, sense of of emotion that, that does not tolerate rivals. Notice how serious God is about exclusive worship. Joshua says, if you forsake him, verse 20, and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after he has done good to you. God cares very deeply about exclusive worship, that we cannot set up for ourselves other gods and serve them alongside of God. God must be worshipped alone. Now, if we are in Christ, God's wrath has been satisfied. We will not experience God's wrath on this earth or in the life to come. Because Christ already took upon himself our wrath. So if we are in Christ, we don't have to experience that wrath anymore. 
We will not experience this type of discipline that Joshua is calling for. But, but his point is, you have to make a choice. If you are not committed to following him, then you will experience his wrath because it indicates that you were not really a part of Christ. For us, for them, they, were, they really did not accept the truth of God that they had. Now, we understand that God does discipline those whom he loves. But thankfully, he doesn't do it in wrath. He does it in love. He does it in a way that is gentle. In fact, the psalmist says that he is slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the type of God we serve. Not one who is quick to punish every time we do something evil. He is slow to anger and abounding in love to those who fear him. If Israel gave lip service to God while pursuing the Canaanite gods, God would treat them the same way he would have treated the Canaanites. He would have destroyed him. That's what Joshua is saying. Do you, do you remember what we had to do to the Canaanites because they were serving foreign gods? It's not because they were a different race than you, Israel. It's because they rejected me. And they took upon themselves their own gods. And if you do that, Joshua is saying, God will do the same to you because it indicates that you never really accepted me. So when God is jealous, it simply means that he will not tolerate divided loyalty. That he demands exclusive worship. So many people are disillusioned to the offer that God gives to all who hear his word. They say, you know, if I simply add on God and this relationship with Christ, then, then I'll be safe. You, you've met people like this who have all these different religions that they follow. They want to just make sure all their bases are covered just so when they get to the afterlife, at least one of them will take care of them. God says, no, that does not work. Okay? When you come to me, I require that you make Christ your Lord. That's what we call lordship salvation. You cannot put God up on a mantle with Mary and Buddha and all these things like pleasure and popularity and whatever else is our idol. We can't do that. God demands exclusive worship. It's impossible for our sins to be forgiven unless we have a change of loyalty. This is something, obviously, that God has to do in us. But, but this is what He does. He changes our loyalty. You see, as unbelievers, we are... We are destined for, we are loving and enjoying the fellowship that we have with the world. Our loyalty is to the world, to the flesh, to the desires that are in the world. But when God saves us, He changes our loyalty. He doesn't allow us to straddle the fence where, oh, you can still keep that, but then grab onto me too. It's time to make a choice. Jesus says in the Gospels, that you need to take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. It's a giving up of the pleasures of this world. That is what salvation is about. It's about a change of loyalties. And that is ultimately what it means when Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God. It is to set Christ as Lord over everything. That, that he is commander. That he is master in every area of our lives, and we are willing to put everything else subservient to Him. So that is the motivation for exclusive worship. 
in verses 21 and 22, and then verses 25 through 28, we see the sincerity, sincerity of exclusive worship. Verse 21 says, The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the peoples, You are witnesses against yourself, that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. The necessity of sincerity and exclusive worship is seen in Joshua's command. In verse 14, he says, Fear the Lord in, in sincerity and truth. Okay, so it's seen in his command. It's also seen in his covenant. In the covenant that, that Israel has to now make between themselves and God. And we talked about last week how this whole chapter is basically a covenant treaty. It's, it's all done in covenant language. The first part is the historical prologue, the first 13 verses. And then verses 14 through 24, which we've been looking at today, talk about the requirements that have to be taken care of between the vassal, the sovereign, and the people. And then we'll see later that um, Joshua writes this down, verse 26. He writes it down to make it a testimony of what they had said, basically a written contract that they had made this agreement between themselves and God. And then throughout this passage, we've seen these blessings and curses, which are part of a treaty as well, a covenant. And so Joshua makes it clear to them that, that they must serve the Lord. So the people, even though Joshua is giving them objections, listen, if you don't serve God exclusively, then he will do these things to you. They respond in verse 21, no, but we will serve the Lord. They are sincere. This is a strong adversative. Never, may it never be, God forbid, we, we would never turn from God and follow these false gods. So it's seen in the covenant. It's also seen in, in the witness that, is, that Joshua sets up. Joshua says, first of all, that you are a witness to yourselves. In verse, uh, in verse 22, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord to serve him. And then in verses 25 and 26, the covenant is actually finalized. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary. We'll see later in verse 27 that what happens is this, this monument, this memorial that was set up also speaks to this agreement that they had made with God. He said, this will be to future generations a testimony of, of what you have done here. You can't just flippantly say you're going to serve the Lord if you're not going to do it. We have this covenant. You are a testimony to yourself and this, this memorial that we've set up. This is no small, small thing. In fact, Joshua, what he does in verse 26 is sets up a large stone in a place that Israel would often come to, the place of Shechem where they would worship God. And so not only do their own consciences testify about this testimony that they had made and the written covenant, but also this stone is set up. And all these testimonies speak to the fact, to the fact that Serving other gods, serving other gods alongside of, of the true and living God is basically a denial of God. Look at the last part of, well, let's read the whole verse 27. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. 
Thus it shall be a witness for thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. To serve other gods alongside the true and living God is a basic denial of the true God. We must serve God alone. Lastly, we skipped over verses 23 and 24. I want to come back to them now. We want to see the expression of exclusive worship. The expression. What does it mean for us? Okay, We agree. We can't serve other gods alongside of the true and living God. What does it mean? Israel's probably asking the same thing. Joshua, what are we supposed to do if we want to serve the true and living God? Verse 23. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the, to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord and we will obey his voice. It requires primarily two things. The expression of our worship to God. Our exclusive worship requires, first of all, a removing of idols. Now this is stated throughout the passage. You see it in verse 30, 23. Now therefore put away the foreign gods. Okay, so we're moving of idols. Look at verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So we see it there, verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whom whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 19, Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God, He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm, consume you after He has done good to you. Now, you probably know the rest of the story. You know what happens Several years later, after these generations had died, in the book of Judges, it continues the story. And we find out that, that Israel was supposed to be putting away these gods because sometimes there were people still in the land that they were supposed to be expelling, that they were supposed to be destroying. And instead, what did they do? They made them their servants. And so as a result, they, these people, these people who are their servants, the Canaanites, kept their gods and now these gods were among the Israelites and the inevitable result is that a great deal of paganism infiltrated the land of Israel and the human nature being what it is these false gods eventually became a snare look at chapter 23 verse 13 this is exactly what God had predicted 23.13 Know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. If you do not put away these false gods, Israel, they will become a snare to you. Turn over to Judges chapter 2 because I want to show you that this is actually what happens to the future generations. Judges chapter 2. Verse 3 says, Therefore I also said, I will not drive out them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will become a snare 
to you. This is what happens to Israel. Throughout the book of Judges, we have Israel constantly asking God for help, humbling themselves and saying, God, please help us. He comes to their aid by sending a judge. And then they turn away from him again because they have not expelled, they have not gotten rid of the foreign gods. They have not done like Joshua and the leaders of Israel had done here in Joshua chapter 24. And that is that they had, chose, they had not chosen to serve the one true and living God. Joshua says it's time, to, it's time to make a choice. Whether it's going to be the gods of this world or the God of heaven, you need to choose. But as for me, and as for my house, we are going to serve the Lord. The Lord kept responding to them. He kept responding to these people throughout the book of Judges with, with mercy. And then he would bring judgment upon them when they turned away from him. And so the lesson that we see here is that even after times of spectacular revival or reformation or covenant renewal, the people of God are never more than a generation or two from unfaithfulness, from unbelief, from massive idolatry, from disobedience, from the wrath of God. May God help us. We are never far away from turning from God. We have to keep God at the center of our attention. We must choose. So the first thing I said, that the way in which we follow after the one true and living God, the way that we express our exclusive worship is through removing idols. The second way is by trusting God. Joshua says, we need to trust God through obedience. You need to obey and serve the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. It requires that we trust in God even when we don't understand. And so it requires a removal of idols. It requires a trusting in God. And then I want to add a third one, and that is that exclusive worship demands that we carry on the legacy of the great God that we, ser we serve. Look at Judges chapter 2, verse 7. I'm happy to report to you that throughout Joshua's life and throughout the lives of the leaders of Israel, they carried on the legacy of the great God they served. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord which which he had done for Israel. There is a necessity, I talked about this a little bit last week, about tra for training future generations. We cannot assume that they know God. We can't assume that just because we have had these great times of fellowship with God and we've seen these great things that God has done, that our children will be able to see that, or, or our students, or whomever. We can't assume that. This is exactly what happened in the book of Judges. Once we assume that they know the same God that we know, we should not be surprised when they reject him. The next generation, after these leaders and Joshua had died, did not carry on the legacy. They did not serve God. Look at verse 10, Judges chapter 2. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. 
What I want you to notice about both of these verses is that the reason that they did not serve God is because they didn't see the works that God had done. Look at verse 7. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great works of the Lord, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he had done in Israel. You see, Joshua and Caleb saw all these great things. They saw the crossing of the Red Sea. They were a part of it. They saw God provide for them with manna in the wilderness. They saw God conquer all these difficult and large nations. And many of their children saw it as well. But then the next generation didn't see it. Was it because God wasn't there? Was it because God wasn't acting? Was it because God wasn't protecting them? It was because they did not see God for themselves. And that is my point. We can't assume that they will see the God that we see. We have to show them God for themselves. They have to see God work for themselves. They have to see the joy of knowing and loving the scriptures for themselves. We can't simply say, look what God's done in my life. That is helpful. But ultimately, they need to see God for themselves. In fact, 3 John chapter 1, verse 11 says, Those who practice evil have not seen God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 says, No one who practices sin has seen God. The reason that we stray from God, the reason that we don't set up God as the one true and living God is because we have not seen Him. And that's the way our children will respond as well. So when it comes to choosing choosing between God and idols, the temptation in our day is not to set up some wooden idol in our house that we can bow down to, some shrine, or go to some place. The temptation is to set something up something else up in the place of God. That is what idolatry is. Idolatry is simply setting some other object or desire in the place of God. Moving God out of priority in our lives and putting something else in its place. Now, idolatry can be, it can be very obvious. It can be very overt. It can be something sinful. There are all sorts of reasons why we set up sinful things above God. It could be lust, could be revenge or envy or something we covet or desire for position or power. But all these motives that drive us to put something else in the place of God can basically be summed up in one phrase. I wish to be God. My desires rule, not yours. I will have first place in my life. You can take a little bit lower level. I wish to be God. That is supreme idolatry. That is what idolatry is, is setting something else up in the place of God. Now, it can be something very overt like sin. I think the struggle in our day is that it can also be something very covert like something good that God gives us. Maybe one of God's gifts, we can put that in place of God. John Piper, in his book, A Hunger for God, says this, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, 
but the prime time dribble or triviality which we drink every night. For all that is evil that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table, he's referring to Luke chapter 14. Remember when the, the man had the great dinner and he invited all these guests and they said, well, we can't come. For all those things, the reason they can't come to this great dinner, this great feast of loving God is, I've got a piece of land. I've got a yoke of oxen. I've got a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these gifts replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is barely recognizable and almost incurable. In other words... What we desire, what we live for, what we pursue with all of our passion will take the place of God. Whether it be even something good like money. Money is not inherently evil. Or the approval of our children, acceptance of our co-workers or friends, or power, or some sort of emotion that we're living for, laughter, or some feeling of satisfaction, or status that I've arrived among my peers, or that people see me a certain way. Or independence, the ability to be free from authority. Most of those things are not wrong in and of themselves. But when they take the place of God, they become his rival. We have to choose. Israel, in the book of Judges, was constantly wavering between humility before God and rebellion, rejecting him. And there is a type of evil that is very dangerous, that is neither good nor in, or terribly bad, where we waver from, from being extremely close to God and terribly rebellious, or we, we, we do things that are very bad, but then we don't hunger for righteousness. And that stance is a drift toward idolatry. And we should expect that judgment, judgment will soon be upon us. That type of, of action, that type of thinking lacks a heart of David that sought after God. You see this throughout the Psalms. And the reason that we are this way, that we waver from, from trusting God to rebelling against God is because we haven't chosen. We haven't done what Joshua is telling us here. Make a choice. It's time to choose. We don't seek the Lord as we, sh as we should. So, it's time for us to choose. Who will you choose? Who will you choose? Will you choose the God of heaven who made you and who sent his son to purchase your uh, redemption? It's not enough to simply verbalize your choice, say, yes, I serve God. Because millions of people all over this country and this world come to church just like you do, but they live like the world the rest of the week. This choice demands more than we, that we simply give lip service to God and then the rest of the week live as if he doesn't exist. God wants your heart. Will you give it to him? The remedy for idolatry I think is best stated in Psalm chapter 81, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Hear, O my people, and I will warn you. 
If you would but listen to me, O Israel, you shall have no foreign god among you. You shall not bow down to an alien god. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. You want to know what the remedy is for idolatry? Is to seek after God. God is saying, open wide your mouth and I will satisfy you. You're looking for all these desires in this world. You're trying to set all these things up that you will make you happy. I am the only one that will satisfy you. God demands exclusive worship. Will you worship him? Or would you rather put some other object or desire in his place? May God help us to make Christ Lord of our lives, even this season as we think about his birth. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, as the song says that we sing often, we are prone to wander. We constantly are like the Israelites in that we turn from you, even though you've done so many great things, even though we understand that you demand exclusive worship, we, we still follow after the desires that we think will make us happy, that will satisfy us. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that each of our hearts would be turned toward you. And that our hearts would recognize the great works that you have done for us. And that we would respond by putting away the gods of this world. That we would put away the desires, the pleasures, the popularity, the power, the possessions. Put them all away so that we can serve you and you alone. Help us to seek your kingdom first. And then expect everything else to follow afterward. Not for that purpose so that we can receive the great gifts from you, but so that we can serve you because you are worthy of our worship. Help us to make a commitment to follow you and to do it with all of our energy, with everything that we have and in every aspect of our lives. Lord, we need your help. We cannot do this on our own. We need you to fight this battle for us, and so we pray that you'd help us to trust you and to give our lives completely to you. We're thankful for Jesus Christ and the fact that he makes it possible for us to turn to you. May you be pleased in the way that we conduct our lives. We pray it in the name of our great Savior. Amen.